So I'm going to read Matthew. I'll start in in, uh, verse 9 of chapter 6. And I'm going to read through verse 13 in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is preaching here and he says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come now and bless the reading of your word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word as we look at another one of your attributes. Lord, my heart is heavy this morning for many reasons, uh, but I I pray specifically this morning for Front Street Baptist Church in Statesville as they have suffered a loss this week that's um, unimaginable. But as we study who you are, and we talked last week about you as a father, you know our hurts and our pains, and it, and it, it grieves you to see us hurt, and, and you, you know what we're going through. And, and as, a, as a family of Christians, Lord, not just a local body here, but we, we grieve with, with other believers in Statesville and around the world. And so we, we, we feel that hurt. We, we studied two weeks ago that we are a family, universal. We saw last week that you're a father, that you know the hurts of your children, that you, that you want to nurture us and care for us. And so I pray that you would do that for that local congregation there and, and just help them as they grieve. Lord, I pray that they will rest in in knowing that you are completely sovereign over all things. You weren't taken by surprise by a bus wreck or a flat tire or anything. You knew it and you planned all of this to happen and you work all things for our good. And so we we worship you and we lift up that family as they grieve and as they they come together this this morning to worship um, with with many of their uh, church members no longer with them. So we pray that you would just uh, help them through that. Once again, Lord, I pray that you would take this word as we study it, as we hopefully focus on you today, that we would do just that, that you would not let anything in this room or outside or anything distract us from looking at you and focusing our attention on who you are. And I ask these things in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. And um, I'm going to start off by reading a, a couple sentences or a few sentences out of this book I've been reading. I thought this is, this is really good as we study through this. And it seems like we're going really slow through this. Um, this, this may help you understand why. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life, to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. 
John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Jeremiah 9.23 Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Is God speaking. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives him the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God in, in Hosea 6.6. 6. Now the reason I start with that is this. Most of us have never been challenged mentally to think using our minds. And, and the fact of the matter is, and most of us have experienced this, that, that we can graduate from high school without really being able to read a, a, a piece of literature and comprehend it. And most of us... Go through our entire lives and never really care to. We don't have to. We won't have to read literature and understand it and comprehend it. And the problem with that is that God has chosen to reveal himself in specific ways. And those ways are the written word and the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is no longer physically on earth with us. And so all we have left is the record of all that God has been doing from the very beginning of history through man, or with mankind, that's all we have. And that is this. The Bible is the record of what God has been doing throughout history. And, and so we have to read in order to know God. There's no way around it. It's hard. It's a discipline. I don't enjoy it. And, and, and people say, oh, I wish I could read like you do all the time. I don't enjoy reading. There are very, I, I can't even name a book that I've read in the past couple years that I couldn't put down. It's not fun all the time. But we have to discipline ourselves. And so we have to read in order to know God. Theology, study of God, is not an experiential science. It's observational. We don't come to God and say, well, I've experienced this. My heart feels this. I, 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 I like to think of God as this. Or I like to think of God as this. No, we don't get to do that. Because we have His Word. We go to Scripture and we observe what He has said, what He has done, and we learn about who God is. And we, we learn to know God through that. And that is the most important thing we will ever do in our lifetimes. Is get in this word and know God. Not know about God. But truly know Him. And so I understand that oftentimes it's hard to sit and study and meditate on the attributes of God. Now I don't mean meditate like some, you know, Eastern philosophy, you know, sitting with your legs crossed, hmm, meditate. I'm thinking, I'm saying study his word and think. And just think about what does this mean and understand it using the word to think in your mind. It's hard for us. It's it's hard for us to contemplate eternity or infinity or omnipotence. And then and, and it's hard for us to see how those things have anything to do with our daily lives. Because we live and it's like, well, what does it matter? So we, that's, that's hard for us. And, and 
most of us, we live in the Bible Belt, we live in the South, We've a lot of us have grown up in churches, and so it's actually easier for us, we, we sit here and we wait for the application part of the sermon. Just tell me what to do, and that would be easier. We, we honestly, we like this better. If there's something that I could just do to make God happy, tell me to do it and I will do it. We receive the law better than we receive the gospel. We're, we're, it's much easier. And that's why a lot of the sermons you hear nowadays say, just do this and God will do this. If you, if, if you will do this, then you will release God's power in your life. It's bull. That's the law. Do this and you get this. That's the law. But the gospel says rest in what Jesus has already done. It's finished. And so we are usually so much quicker and and it's easier for us to receive the law rather than the gospel. We want to work for our salvation because that's easier. Just please tell me to quit cussing. Tell me to quit drinking. Tell me to quit hanging out with whoever I'm hanging out with. and, And I got it. I'll do it. But that's not what the Bible says. And we're, it's easier for us to do that when the Bible actually says, just rest. Jesus has done the work. Trust in Jesus. It's not about doing, 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 doing. But we would rather have steps to follow than an attribute of God to sit and think about and ponder. Because we're just not taught to be thinkers. In schools, we're not taught to be thinkers anymore. Here's your lesson. Here's your test. You failed. Move on. We're not taught to just think. And so that's a problem because we must know God. We have to know God. And knowing God is the supreme endeavor of the human life. It's the most important thing we will ever do. And so it is a good thing to sit and go slow through this. And spend an hour talking about Father. And an hour talking about in heaven. And an hour talking... It's good, but it's hard. And so we, we get to know God... Through this, And as we get to know God, the more that we know about the attributes of God, all of them put together, not just God is love, God is this, but all of them, that He is a Father, that He is in heaven, that He, he has a, a, a righteous anger and wrath at the same time, uh, unconditional love. We, we put all this together and we learn about who God is. And as we do that, God becomes more enticing than our sin. Because this, this almost un fathomable God that we study becomes a whole lot more intriguing than, well, this is just what everybody else is doing. This is easy. It's easy to just give in to sin. It's hard to sit and think, what does it mean that he's in heaven? And so that's why I'm going slow through these beginning words in this prayer, because when we have a proper view of God, then we have a proper doctrine of prayer. If we get God wrong, we get prayer wrong. If God becomes our vending machine rather than our Father, then we get prayer wrong and we expect, God, I've done this, now you better come through. And we don't get to go to God and, and say that. And so that's why I'm going slow through these attributes, these first few words in this prayer. So last week we saw God as a father and we looked at what it means to be a father and saw that God perfectly fills the role that all earthly fathers should fill. He does it perfectly. He loves us. He nurtures us. He teaches us from his word. He protects us physically and spiritually. He always has our best interest in mind. He disciplines us when he has to, even though we don't like it at times, he's Forgiving, He's merciful, He's kind, He's gentle. He delights in us as His children. 
These are all characteristics of God shown from Scripture that are a part of His fatherhood. Now, as an aside, I just thought of this. If you're not a believer, you don't get that. A lot of people say, God is the Father of us all. We're all God's children. Wrong. We're not all God's children. If you are a believer, a Christian, God is your Father. If not, He's God. And you will either you can either come to know Him as a Father or submit to Him ultimately as ruler and Lord. So, we learned about Him as a Father. And this week we're going to look at the next two words, in heaven. And next week we'll talk about God's holiness. And all of these put together, plus many, many more, are necessary for us to grasp and understand who it is that we're praying to. So we're going to look at this phrase, in heaven. Now, this prepositional phrase denotes where God is. Now, if you'll remember last week, we we talked about how Jesus gives us this model prayer. And in the beginning part that we call the invocation, He addresses the prayer. Our Father in heaven. He's addressing the prayer. Two separate concepts are that of a father and that of in heaven. Father tells us who we're talking to. Heaven tells us where He is. And both of these together form the address of the prayer. So this way we ascribe fatherhood to God without ever being confused as to what father we're talking about. Because some people believe that they can close their eyes and pray and maybe a father who's died can actually hear them praying. And I'm just praying to my... That's not what we're talking about. Now we're going to talk today about heaven as a place a little bit, but we're not going to linger there much because that's not really the focus of the passage. Remember, we are invoking God in these words. Now when I say invoking, you know, for me, I picture sitting around a seance table, you know, with our eyes closed, invoking the spirits or like a Ouija board. It's not invoking just means we're calling out to who that, that being that we're addressing the prayer to. We are invoking God. We're Saying out loud who we're talking to. We are addressing the prayer to our Father in heaven. So He's not just a Father. And we aren't just shooting prayers out into the sky. He's our Father in heaven. His, both His fatherhood and His heavenly residence teach us about who He is. So we, we have to understand what it means that He's in heaven. Just as much as we have to understand that he's our father. They, they both go together. So if you lose sight of either one of this, these, then you fall short of God's true character. If you love the fact that he's a father, but you reduce the fact that he's in heaven, you, you don't know the real God. Or if you love the fact that he's in heaven, but you don't know him as a father, well, then you worship the God of deism. Yeah, he created everything, but he's not really involved anymore. False God. So we have to know both of these. So we're going to talk about heaven as a place. We'll talk about heaven as the dwelling place of God and and the implications that that has for our prayer life. So, if you remember last week, I said that heaven takes God outside of our current range of understanding. Father is something that we can comprehend, most of us. We've either had a father, um, have a father now, watched a father interact with his family on TV. We understand the idea of a father Heaven, on the other hand, not so much. We have scripture that teaches about heaven, but a lot of it's very, it's it's figurative and and uses symbolism. And so we don't really know what it's going to be like. And so heaven is not something that we can sit around and, and talk about, you know, that time I went to heaven. Or we can't share stories about being in heaven because we've, none of us have ever been. 
So we're, we're, we got Father, I get it, Heaven, not so much. So what happens is when we, we read this phrase, our Father in Heaven, God is brought close like a Father. He's, he's close. And then He's lifted high above our understanding. And this teaches us about the transcendent nature of God. I'm going to use that word transcendent a bunch today. And I'll explain later if, you, if you're not sure what it means. Uh, I'm going to give a definition later. But we're learning about the transcendent nature of God. He's very near to us. But at the same time, He's very far away. He's very intimately acquainted with us and our lives. And yet He's separate from us. Because He's in heaven. He's within our reach. As a father, but then he's outside of our reach because he's in heaven. He's very personal and he's a private God and father to every individual one of us. And yet at the same time, he is the public God of all creation. So we are, we are human beings and he is being. From whom which all other being flows because it says in Acts 17, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So all being flows from Him. We share His image, and yet He is vastly different than us. That's what this is doing. So this, this combination, our Father in Heaven, is like looking at God through binoculars, and He's far away, and He becomes in close, and then flipping Him over and looking at the backside of Him, and once again, He's even farther away than He was before. You get that, that picture. That's what's happening here. So you got Father, which is close, and then is in Heaven, which... Takes him out of our reach again. I want to talk about heaven as a place for a second. And we'll come back to God. What does Jesus mean when he says in heaven? Because when we talk about heaven as in. If you are a Christian when you die you will go to heaven. We are usually talking about the, the final state of all things. When all said and done we're going to be in heaven when we die. We'll be with God. Now when we read the Bible, we learn that when all is said and done, all that the Bible talks about and prophesies has been fulfilled, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And believers, Christians, will exist on the new earth with glorified yet physical bodies on a physical earth, really more real than we can even imagine with God on a new earth. We're not going to be on clouds playing harps. We're not going to be walking streets of gold. We're going to be on a new earth. More real and more vivid than we can even imagine right now. Because we will have glorified minds, eyes, senses. And it will be on earth untainted with sin. Now when Jesus talks about our Father in heaven, as in we're praying right now our Father in heaven, he's talking about right now. Heaven is where God is now. The Greek word uranois means the sky. And it comes from another word that means lifted up or elevated. And it is also used throughout the New Testament as the dwelling place of God. So we get this, heaven, up, where God is, up. Now it's interesting, I think, that Luke... When he records the prayer that Jesus taught, he doesn't add this designation of in heaven to his prayer. It just says Father. Matthew uses it here, our Father in heaven. And he actually uses the word heaven 82 times in his gospel. Now that doesn't seem like a lot maybe. But Mark uses it 18 times. John uses it 70 times in his gospel and in the book of Revelation, which is... Seems to be all about heaven. Luke 
uses it 61 times in Acts and in his gospel put together that makes up the, the majority of the New Testament. And then Paul uses it 21 times in nine letters. So Matthew blows everybody out of the water as far as uses of the word heaven. Now, one would assume that because Matthew is writing, he is a Jew writing to Jews, that this idea of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is prominent because of the Jewish preoccupation with the kingdom of heaven. They wanted a kingdom to come on earth where they were no longer under oppression. Matthew is writing to try to convince his kinsmen that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands of years, ushering in the kingdom of heaven. And so he uses this many, many, many times. So when we talk about heaven here, we're not, let's not think about floating on clouds, playing harps, streets of gold, or the final state on the new earth. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where God is. But... We have to be careful when we're thinking of God as being in heaven because if we get this wrong, then we're going to have trouble with other places in Scripture. God, the Bible teaches, God the Father is spirit. He does not have a body. And in 2 Chronicles 2.6, when Solomon was preparing to build the temple for the Lord, he said... But who is able to build him a house since heaven and even highest heaven cannot contain him? That's, that is to say God does not actually reside in a, in a particular place called heaven. He's not constrained by whatever boundaries this place of heaven might be. And like I'm, I'm not in heaven and then I'm in heaven and in here is where God is and out here is where God is not. That's not how this works. God is omnipresent. In uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he records this definition for omnipresence. God does not have size or special dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Yet God acts differently in different places. So with infinite building supplies, infinite manpower, infinite time, infinite space, we could never build a place, a facility that could house God. It can't happen because He cannot only be in a place. He's outside of the idea of size. We think of size. God is not in size. He's not in spaces. So when we consider that God is our Father in heaven, let's not, we also can't be thinking that there's this place of heaven. And we're going to go in, you go in the front door, go down the hall to the left, there's God. No, it's not like that. You don't walk in and God is there. He's everywhere all at once. He cannot just dwell in one place. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking of himself, said... I knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven. And in this third heaven, he received special revelation. He received um, his, this, the Lord confirmed his apostleship. And he even called the place paradise. Now this helps us understand that heaven is a transcendent spiritual state where God acts in special blessing and revelation. Also, we just have to assume that if there's a third heaven, there must be a first and a second. And, and general consensus among scholars is that first heaven is like the sky where the birds and airplanes fly. Second heaven is 
outside of our ozone layer where galaxies and stars and the cosmos are, our universe. And then third heaven is outside of that. Is a realm outside of that, above that, where God specifically chooses to bless, reveal, and act in a special way different than He does here on earth. But heaven is still a real place. And we get a glimpse into the activities of heaven when we read in the book of Revelation. We see pictures of the throne room and what's happening now. When I started the service last week, I talked about when we worship together, we're gathering with the angels who have been worshiping forever. We're worshiping with them. They're doing that now. In 1 Peter 3.22, he reminds us that Jesus, physical body, Jesus with meat and flesh, has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he is physically there. But when Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven, He doesn't mean God is constrained in a place. This is big. This is this is thinking. We we this is. I can't I can't focus on that enough. This is outside of our 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 realm. God is fully in all places at once forever. Just to be clear, this is not pantheism that says all is God. That everything is God. This is God here, God here, and God here. It's not panentheism that says everything is in God. God, the Father, is the first person of the Trinity. And He is distinct from His creation. And yet, still present in all places, at all times, with His creation. It's big. we're, We're scratching the surface here. So that's what Jesus doesn't mean when he specifies that God is in heaven. He's not in a place. He's not constrained. We don't have to go find him. Rather, when Jesus and many other of the writers in the scriptures talk about heaven, use the term heaven in respect to God's habitation, they're referring more to the eternal status to which God is held. And this can be looked at in two different ways. That are true to God's essential nature. His transcendence and His power. Transcendence and power. Transcendence. I've already mentioned it. According to the dictionary that I found. Means existence or experience beyond the normal and physical level. So when we ascribe this to God. When we say in heaven. We mean that God is outside of. Everything that we humans know of as far as physical and normal. He's outside of it. He's outside of that. When we read of his being in heaven, it denotes his separation from the earthly. He is the creator and he transcends the created. He made it. So he's outside of it. We are physical beings and so we are limited by time. And space, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, weather, hunger, all these things, traffic, these things hinder us and slow us down. Nothing ever stops God from doing anything that He's ever going to do, ever. Nothing can constrain Him because He transcends the natural world. He's beyond it. In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, He says... Am I a God at hand 
declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? These are rhetorical questions asked by God. He is God, and so of course He can be at hand and yet far away. He can be close and far away. There are no places on earth where a man can hide and God won't be able to see him because He fills heaven and earth. He's everywhere. The physical world in no way hinders God from accomplishing His purposes, doing whatever He wants to do. Nothing stops Him. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your, from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, here the psalmist is describing to us the transcendent nature of God. So when we pray to our Father in heaven, we are answering with David, nowhere. There's nowhere that you can run from His presence, David. There's nowhere you can go. He will always be everywhere at once. And again... It's funny, Solomon, at the dedication of the temple after he built it, remember a minute ago we read before he built it, and he was saying, you know, God can't dwell in this place, this building. After he built it, in 1 Kings 8, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon had built the largest and most extravagant temple that the world will ever know. And he was still wise enough to know God's not going to be in here. He can't be in here. It's like he's saying, was all this a waste? I knew before going into it he wasn't going to fit. Now I've got it built. He's still not going to fit. Heaven and the highest heaven can't contain this God. No physical realm that has been created by God can constrain God. He is the creator of everything. He transcends the created order. He's outside of it. He crosses it. He spans it. He's transcendent. That's what we mean when we say in heaven. The other one is his power. And signifying that our Father is in heaven, we're pointing out God's power. Remember the word for heaven comes from another word that means to be lifted up or exalted. Now, now we understand that in any sort of gathering or event, the main host or the speaker will be elevated above the rest of the people. Kings and queens have always had thrones that are above the common people. When people give speeches, they walk onto a stage above the people. The idea of being lifted or elevated higher than others shows status or power or honor to whoever it is. They are higher than those who they are above. In Nehemiah 8, when Ezra read from the law, it says he walked up and stood on a wooden platform made for the purpose of lifting him up as he preached 
the word of God. And that was a place of honor. And when he began reading, the people stood to their feet in honor of God's word. And it says they called out, amen, amen, as he read the law. That was because it was an honor. They were hearing from the Lord as he spoke from his law. And so Ezra was up high and the people were down low and they stood up in honor. So being above is just that the idea is you're, this is a place of honor over something else. Our Father is in heaven. That means He's higher than any other. In being creator of all things, He's automatically higher than His creation. And He is to be revered as such. And if you choose not to do it now, someday you will because He is higher. He's higher in His being. He's higher in His rank. He's higher in His authority. He's higher in His power. He's higher in His majesty. He's higher in His holiness. He just is higher. He's in heaven and therefore He is exalted above anything that He's made. He's higher. He is lifted up. Like I said earlier, He's higher in His being because He is the source of all being. There would be no being without God. He created all that exists and Scripture teaches that it is in Him that all things are held together in Christ. That He is the source of being. Romans 1 tells us of the great sin that we have all fallen into. Every one of us. It says that although God deserves worship and honor, He deserves to be lifted up, we worship created things instead. We worship one another. We worship trees. We worship cars. We worship books. We'll worship anything under the sun, even if it is the sun or the stars. People will worship anything. And that is the great sin. That's the problem because we worship the created thing rather than the Creator. The only thing worth worshiping is the one who has not been created, but rather created all things. If you worship anything less than him, you're just falling short. You're you're missing the mark. You are lacking the glory of God. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of or lack the glory of God. We're supposed to worship God and we say, I'll just worship this other person. Or, I'll just worship a car. Or, I'll just worship a, a, a career or sports or whatever it may be. And that is our sin. That's our problem. Every sin that we commit comes from that. We don't want to worship God. We want to worship something else. Ultimately, ourselves. God's being in heaven shows that He outranks all others. There are many earthly powers. There have been many earthly powers. Some of those powers have had in the past total rule over the known world when they were in power. And even those of the highest rank, God still outranks them because He is in heaven. Those who have the highest rank that we know of, God is still the most high. He truly is the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. He rules over them. If you could suppose that now in our world there came to power a king who conquered every nation and every people group on the planet. Where every nation, every people group, every language was subjected to him and did what he said. 
God is still higher because He's not on earth. He's in heaven. He, can, he, is, he outranks any authority on planet earth because He transcends planet earth. He's higher than planet earth. He's above all kings, earthly kings, because He's in heaven. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. So you imagine... You got a little puddle of water in your hand and you move your hand, turn it this way and that way. That's how God rules the kings of this world that could have us dead in a second. God's going like this. However He wills. He controls all kings. He's highest ranking king in the universe because He's in heaven. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. He owns it all. He governs it all. He can't be contained in a place called heaven because heaven and the heaven of heavens, the highest heaven, belong to Him. Isaiah 66.1 Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Once again, he is above the earth. And we see this this use of heaven as analogous to God's eternal status. In our words, he props his feet up on our little planet. It's nothing to him. It's his footstool. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Now right there you see the direct correlation between God's being in heaven or in the heavens and His total transcendence and power. Because He's in the heavens, nothing can stop God from doing whatever He wants to do, wills to do, has planned to do. If it makes Him happy to do it, He will do it. Nothing can stop Him or slow Him down. Therefore, He is the happiest being in the universe. He never has to worry about traffic. He's never sick. He never oversleeps. Nothing stops Him. Nothing constrains Him. And so He's eternally happy. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And speaking of the nations of the earth who rage and plot in vain and take counsel against the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 2-4 says, He who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Our Father is in heaven. He sits back and He scoffs. It's like a joke to Him that people would conspire against Him or think they're going to overthrow Him or do away with Him. The modern, uh, the, the new atheist movement says we've got to get rid of all religion, especially Christianity. And God sits back and giggles at the thought that they might get rid of Him. He holds them in derision. It's funny to Him that they would do this. He laughs. His heavenly throne is seated above all thrones, above all dominions. He is high and lifted up. He is to be adored. He's elevated above all others. He is our Father in heaven. John Calvin wrote that when we read in heaven, it means all things are subject to His dominions. That the world and everything in it is held by His hand. That His power is everywhere diffused. 
that all things are arranged in providence. That's what we mean when we say in heaven. That's what we're praying. You're in control of it all. Although heaven is a very real place, God's status in heaven is symbolic of His transcendence and His power. So the question we ask is, what does this have to do with prayer? What does this have to do with me? How is this going to benefit me when I walk out the door? Or better yet, why does it matter that we believe this, truly believe this? Not just know it, but truly believe this about God. If we put this phrase together that we studied last week or two weeks ago and this week, we get our Father in heaven. We see His fatherly love coupled with His boundless power. When we pray, we must do so in faith that He loves us and is good like a father and that He has the power to do whatever He wants to do because He is in Heaven. He is seated in the heavens. See, our earthly fathers are limited. We can go to them and we can ask them for knowledge and wisdom. And they may be able to help us. But they are always limited in their wisdom and their knowledge. There will always be a limit. There will always be something that you'll go to your father and ask him. And he will say, you know, I just don't know. They've gone before us, our earthly fathers. And so we might go to them for insight into our problems and and understand their experiences, see if they can guide us in our own experiences. But their insight will always be limited, always. Their experience will always be limited. We might call on dad to come help us lift something heavy or, or help us to move something, but there will always be a limit to their physical ability. There's going to be something that's too heavy for dad, always. As a matter of fact, there's going to come a point, if it's not here already, when all of our earthly fathers will no longer be here with us. They will not exist on this planet with us. It's coming because they're physical Our earthly fathers are often very intimately acquainted with us and they know how we think and act and feel. They know our wants and our needs. But there's always a limit to how much they know. They can only know what you let them know. If you don't tell them, they can't know it because they can't read your mind. Our earthly fathers are limited. Our heavenly father is not limited. He's transcendent and he's all powerful. So when we pray... And we pray to the God of the Bible. We are going in before the God who is seated in the heavens. He transcends all earthly limits and has unlimited power. So when we go to Him for knowledge and wisdom, He has promised to give generously to all without reproach in James 1. There's no limit to the wisdom of God. There's no limit to His knowledge. He's all wise and all knowing. He knows everything. He could see all of our experiences before we lived them, before we got here. He actually ordered all of them before the foundation of the world. He's not limited. His word instructs us on how to navigate through this life according to his will and his purposes. And if we will do what this book says, we will be fine. But we don't. When it comes to intimacy... God knows you more intimately than you know yourself. 
Because He formed you in the womb. He knows all the hairs on your head and all the freckles on your skin. He knows all of the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Even the ones that you pray nobody on this planet ever finds out. He knows them all because He's transcendent. He he sees our thoughts and our hearts. He knows everything. He's not limited by anything. So when we pray to our Father in heaven... We can rest assured that He is able to accomplish all of His purposes. That He indeed does work all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1, and for the good of those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8. He does do this and we can can rest in this. Our Father in heaven transcends all of the created order, everything. So prayer works anywhere we go or anywhere we may find ourselves. God is, He can't be constrained to this little brick building. So we don't have to wait till we get here to pray. He can't be constrained to a prayer room or a, a confession booth. So we don't have to wait to get there to pray. The highest mountain, the highest spot in the universe, or the lowest, deepest, darkest trench of the ocean where no person has ever been. No person knows what's down there. He's there. And if you ever make it down there, And pray, He's right there. Our earthly fathers are limited. He is not limited. We never have to wait on God to show up. He just is there. He knows what we need before we ask. So in closing, we often wonder as we study the attributes of God, how is it that me... A a, a creature, a a person who is sinful and wicked. How can I even approach that God? How could I have a relationship with that God? Because he's, He's outside of all of this. He's bigger. He's holy. And I'm... Sinful and wicked. I, I, I don't deserve to be around that God. And you are right. And the answer is, of course, that we have to have a mediator. We have to have somebody go in for us. Because we don't, we don't deserve to be in front of this God. And so we have to have a mediator. Because of our sin, we can't stand before God. But because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can be ushered into the throne of God before His presence, into the most holy place. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Matthew's original audience, as they heard this, they were a gathering of Jews... They knew the tabernacle. They knew the sacrificial system. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God in the most holy place. Only one time a year. And only carrying the blood of a lamb that had been killed. That's all they knew. The common Jew knew nothing of going into the presence of God. They did not understand God as an intimate father. They held Him in reverence. But they did not know Him as an intimate father. And that was until Christ came and began teaching this. And ultimately, He died on the cross to reconcile us back to the Father. So now we can have a relationship with the Father through the blood of Jesus. Not some lamb, the blood of Jesus, God's own Son. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And now we have the promise. If we will repent of our sin and turn from it and worship God... We are ushered into His presence. We can go to Him anytime on behalf of the blood of Jesus. That's why we pray 
to our Father in heaven in the name of Jesus. Because it's only in the name of Jesus that we are allowed to go. So we, we put all this together, past three weeks, we, the universal church of Jesus Christ from all ages, his bride, can go to our Father and pray, knowing that He loves us, that He seeks our best interests, that He delights in us, He hears our prayers, and He can answer our prayers according to His will, because nothing can stop Him. Nothing can constrain Him. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. So we're going to pray, and we're going to sing one more song.